This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It can be found on page 810 in your black-covered Bible. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, um, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm struck this morning by how much we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what to do. Things like hurricanes happen and our homes are gone in an instant. So, Father, there's so much that we don't know, and yet you tell us that we can know that you are completely and fully and thoroughly aware of exactly what we need. You know exactly what we need. You know what we need this morning. You knew what we needed before we got here. You know what we need Even when we think that we know better, Lord, you're wise and you're tender and you're gentle. You discipline us, you lead us, you speak to us. So right now I ask, would you send your word out to accomplish all of your purposes? And that's a fun prayer because it's exactly what you say you do all the time. You're always doing that. Would you uh, align our hearts with that? Would you help us to be humble and obedient to whatever you're doing there? Help us to not be stiff-necked or resistant or thorny to your work. 
Help us to not kick against the goads as you shepherd us. Would we listen to you? Would we listen to you? Spirit of God, um, transform us. Transform us. Give us like supernatural humility this morning, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, John, John Stott offers this provocative statement in the first few pages of his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, quote, no comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you're no different than anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people to belong to him. That this people would be a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And that its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is to be holy and different in all its outlook and behavior. The Beatitudes have laid a foundation for us. The Beatitudes have highlighted and defined a way of being in the world that is a blessed way. The good life, the happy life. And the Christian knows that the practical outworking of what follows through the Sermon on the Mount will be impossible for anyone unless they're poor in spirit. Unless they're meek. Unless their hearts are pure. Unless they're peacemakers and merciful and the rest of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes summarize what you need to walk in the way that Jesus tells us about throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But before I get too far into our text today, I just want to say something about the value system that's described in the Sermon on the Mount. This value system of Jesus is the most inclusive system in the world. All other value systems are exclusive, but Jesus isn't. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter whether you came from money or not. It doesn't matter whether you're smart. It doesn't matter whether you are not smart. It doesn't matter what family you come from, what country you're from, or what socioeconomic status you have. The invitation from Jesus into the blessed life is for everyone, which is good news because that means it's for you right now, today. Think about 1 Corinthians It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach a crucified God. And that is a stumbling block to the Jews because they wanted him to be a king right here, right now on earth. And it is foolishness to the rest of the world. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God does not operate like worldly kingdoms. Think about it. 1 Corinthians 1 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God... But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised according to the standards of the world 
even things that aren't, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So you don't have to wonder today. You don't have to sit in your seat this morning and wonder how the game works, wondering how you can get attention or prestige or power or acclaim. You don't have to sit in your seat and wonder how you can get glory. You don't have to be a slave to the worldly standards of what the good life looks like. You don't have to keep running and posturing and trying to prove to everyone in your life that you matter or that you're important. You can actually cut yourself free from all the nonsense of the worldly hamster wheel, always running but never really getting anywhere, always striving and struggling, exhausting yourself to prove to yourself and prove to other people that you're smart enough or moral enough or wealthy enough or powerful enough or just a good enough person. The world worries about all those things, but your father knows what you need. He knows. And the truth of the gospel is that nothing that the world offers you will give you what you need most, which is eternal life. And Jesus says plainly, eternal life is that they know God. That's what you need. That's what you need this morning. And that need is the only real essential human need. And it can't be met by your wife. It can't be met by your husband. It can't be met by your kids. It can't be met by your friends. It can't be met by your career. It can't be met by a bigger house or a a newer car or giving more money away to the poor. That need can only be met through Jesus Christ. The text that we have today functions, it functions like a transitional sentence in an essay. Jesus has painted a portrait of what life in his kingdom will look like right now and will look like in the future. Jesus has given us a picture of how embodying the values of his kingdom now will be manifested in our lives with things like mercy, and enduring persecution. The blessed life is one that gives evidence of the realities named in the Beatitudes. And then at this moment, Jesus starts moving to a new section of teaching and focusing on more explicit instruction for the next several chapters. But as he does that, we should ask ourselves, what does he want us to get from this transition sentence? What does Jesus want us to know as he's transitioning to a different section of his teaching? And I want to name two general things that that Jesus says in this transitional section. One, he says that we, if we're Christians, are salt and we are light. And then two, he assures us that he's not giving us some new and totally different teaching from the teaching of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I've just told you what, the, what, what kind of life represents the values of the kingdom of God. And now you and only you are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. I'm going to give you specific instructions about how, how meekness handles anger. I'm going to give you specific instructions for how being poor in spirit fights lust in your life. And before I do, you must know that this is the fuller and finished picture of the law and the prophets until I return again. I fulfill all that has come before me. So how do I, how do I um, cram all of that into one sermon? I'm going to do it in four movements. 
Jesus is going to give us specific behavioral commands, but here he tells us the role or the function or the purpose of our obedience. Our expression of lawful obedience from our heart is salt in a decaying world and light in the darkness. He isn't saying go try to be salt or go try to be light. He's saying you and only you, true Christian, are salt and are light. So today I'm going to say, I'm going to say four things about salt. Then I'm going to say three things about light. Then I'm going to say two things about fulfillment and one thing about greatness. If you count all of them up with my first two generalizations, that's like 10 points. But it, but it sounds like less when I do it that way. Four things about salt. You're the salt of the world. The household metaphor here that Jesus used would have been common to everybody. It would have been common to everybody. And I'm going to name the four things about this metaphor that I think are important for us to hear right now. Christians are the salt of the earth, which means we aren't fancy, but we are separate. We hinder decay. That's the preservative nature of salt. And we don't want to be useless. There's a warning in this text. Fancy, we are not, but we should be separate. We hinder decay, but we don't want to be useless. We aren't fancy. My point here is to make plain that Jesus wasn't rich or powerful, and he didn't come to the rich and powerful. He didn't come to the halls of Greek philosophers. He didn't demand an audience with all the worldly influencers. He didn't demand to stand in front of kings or rulers or the wisest teachers of his days. He sat on a little hill and said, you, you are the salt of the earth. You simple person, you ordinary person, you fisherman, you simple mother or plain old father. You, you are the salt of the earth. It's striking to me to think about how Jesus said elsewhere, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's that kind of reality that we read about right here. You're the mustard seed. We don't look like much, but God designed it that way. Let me take a load off your back and remind you that if you don't look like much, it's because you're not supposed to. He is. He is. Jesus comes to a nobody people in a nobody place, just like God came to Abraham. And he says, just you wait and see and watch what I'm going to do. If you're here today and you feel small or you feel insignificant or you feel little or unimpressive, that's by design. Even the most impressive among us are feeble when set in comparison with the living God. Even if you've never had any influence in your life, you're still salt. And hey, many of us won't ever get much influence in our lives. Even if you never get a voice, maybe no one will ever listen to me. Maybe nobody will ever listen to you. But you are still the salt of the earth. Even if you think that you will never make a dent, you're still salt. And I know, I get a good seat at this church. I know all that you all are up to. I know how you pray for each other. I know how you minister one to another. I know how you try to love one another. And I know how you pray for your kids and for your grandkids. And I know that sometimes it feels feeble and small and insignificant, but like a mustard seed, take heart out of those little seeds 
God gets so much glory when he's the one that brings the growth. So don't give up. Don't stop. Jesus isn't talking to the high ranking or the prominent or the prestigious or the noteworthy. He's talking to people like us. He's talking to you. You're the very salt of the earth. And that salt is separate. It's separate from the earth. There's an assumption here that people who love and obey Jesus aren't the same as the rest of the world. That's a necessary thing. If you love and obey Jesus, you don't look like everybody else. You don't act like everybody else. You don't think like everybody else. You don't order your life like everybody else. Christians have a distinctly different flavor than the flavor of the world. In other places, Paul mentions the aroma of Christ that Christians kind of give off. And to some, this aroma is beautiful and attractive. And to others, it's putrid and offensive in the aroma of death. And in Matthew 6, 8, Jesus contrasts his instructions with the behavior of the Pharisees, for example. And he says, don't be like them. In fact, John Stott summarizes his whole commentary with that single verse that Jesus is teaching essentially is like, you see this, you see all these ways that these other people try to lord things over you. You see these other religious examples. You see these other examples in the world. Don't be like that. And that's a good and necessary thing. Christians must understand themselves as in the world, but we don't belong to the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're to maintain a distinction. And this distinction should be evident as a Christian distinction, but not, not merely some kind of like cultural distinction. We shouldn't be distinct merely in our temperament or in our, or in our uh, personalities or in our habits or our cultures, but we should be different in our values and how we arrange all of our lives according to values of the kingdom. And the Beatitudes help us understand what separateness looks like. Poor in spirit means we'll be different. We'll be different in our humility. Mourning means that we will take tragedy seriously and we will take the tragedy of sin the most seriously. We'll be different in our meekness compared to the grasping and worrying and vying for our own piece of the pie. We'll be self-forgetful and friends, that's different. That's different than what you see out in the world. We'll be those that love mercy and yearn for righteousness and love true peace. These things alone are what set us and what sets Christians in stark relief against the backdrop of the world. Those same elements aren't only different. They aren't only distinctive. They're also preservative. And that's the third thing I'm going to say about salt. This is the most obvious kind of use for salt. And it's the most obvious application of the metaphor. Christian witness preserves human flourishing. Or another way to say it is that it hinders decay. It inhibits putrefaction. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of a simple illustration when he says, when you walk into a room, maybe where you work or maybe in your school or whatever kind of setting you find yourself in and you find everyone there is gossiping and trashing somebody, but they know that you're a believer. And when you walk in, maybe the conversation 
gets down to a whisper, or maybe it completely stops. That's like a simple, basic, like um, not glamorous kind of an example of how saltiness works. In other, uh, yeah, Christians living in obedience to Jesus, Christians living in obedience to Jesus will have a reforming or correcting influence in whatever spheres that they find themselves in. Christians that exude the Beatitudes will crash into worldly rottenness of our day and hold it at bay. Christian living that emanates out of the character of Christ will be a proactive force against the kingdom of darkness. Christians that radiate these kingdom values aren't on the defensive. They aren't barricaded up behind some kind of stronghold. They're unleashing the war of truly loving their neighbors, their cities, their counties, their countries, by living like what Jesus says is real and true. And it's also the only way to live uh, for human flourishing, both now and in the future age. Jesus is on the throne and he's winning. Christian resistance to evil or rottenness or vileness or sin is the side that wins. We need to be reminded of that. We aren't slowing down the devil's victory. We aren't just slowing down the devil's mutiny project. We aren't trying to take down as many as we can before the people of God are defeated We aren't just an obstacle to the hordes of some powerful enemy. No, we're inflicting more wounds into a dying enemy. Christ struck the death blow in his resurrection. The last enemy to die was death, but Christ used death as a vehicle to defeat death. Christ is not barricaded with the church behind him and behind some rampart or some wall hiding. He's winning. We aren't the ones behind the gates. With Christ, the church crashes against the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail. And he's dispatching salty Christians on missions to act like preservative against the kingdom of darkness. And that's what salt does. This comes with a warning from Jesus that we don't want to be useless. Different commentators argue on exactly what's meant here, but it's at least meant to be a warning for us. This is how salt is salt. That's how you know that it is working. Salt that isn't salty isn't salt. It's dirt or dust. It's meant to be trampled on. This warning about uselessness highlights the fact that Christ and his kingdom is the only way to do anything in this life that lasts. What good is a preservative if it lacks the chemical compounds to preserve anything? And the answer is that it's not good for anything at all. If it's not good for its purpose, it isn't good for anything. Salt is only salt if it's salty. Sophisticated, I know. My exhortation here for us is let's be salty people. Let's be so devoted and so obsessed and so arrested by Christ that we inflict damage to the enemy. 
Let's be the aroma and flavor of Jesus to each other and to every unbeliever in our lives. Let's cultivate the kind of character that's offensive in the only way being offensive really matters. If we aren't indistinguishable from the unbelievers around us, how will we be salty? In what way can we be like salt if we aren't separate? Christ exhorted his followers, have salt in yourselves. And that's my prayer for us. Now I want to talk about light and I want to just name three things about light. Light can't be mingled, it can't be hidden, and it can't be stopped. Light can't be mingled, hidden, or stopped. 2 Corinthians 6 says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion has a believer, does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? In John chapter 1 says, Jesus is the life and light of men, and the light shines into darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light can't be mingled with darkness. Light dispels darkness. Light scatters darkness. Light invades darkness. You can't mix light and darkness together. They're diametrically opposed to each other. This illustration uh, is wanting, but it makes me think of magnets as a kid and trying to get two magnets of the same poles to touch each other. And as much as you try as a little kid and you can't get those magnets to touch, that's what light and darkness do. As one comes, the other is repelled. It's repulsed by the other. Light can't be mingled with darkness. Light also can't be hidden. This is very similar to the salt and salty illustration. Light that isn't lighting anything isn't light. Light that isn't being seen or helping you see something isn't light. And it doesn't have to be some sort of super Christian activity. You, simple, run-of-the-mill, ordinary Christian, are the light of the world. You, faithful believer, are the light of the world. And this means that the light of Christ shines in you and shines through you. The same way that a city on a hill cannot be hidden, light can't be hidden. It, by definition, is available and unhid. The way Christians are light is like being out in the open, up high and obvious. Christians are not to be like hipster speakeasies where you have to go down a dark alley and through some hidden tunnel to find our Christian character. It needs to be out in the open and available. Our Christ-likeness should be on display in the heat of being mocked in the fire of being scorned, the character of Christ has to be on display. In the heat of being lied about or slandered or maligned, the aroma of Christ should be evident. In the midst of death and trial and persecution, even then, the very character of Christ will shine forth like a city that's on top of a hill. And all others will point and they'll say, that's it. I see it. I see Jesus in that man, or I see Jesus in that woman. I see how they mourn. I see their mercy. 
I see their poverty of spirit. I see it. I see it. I see their meekness. I see their humility. I see their hunger and their thirst for righteousness. It's as obvious as a city on a hill. Light must shine to be light, and it must be on display in the Christian and never covered or suppressed or concealed. No one, no one lights a candle and then throws it in a pot and puts on the lid. It doesn't make any sense. And light can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light, that light that came into your heart couldn't be stopped. Jesus, the light of men, can't be stopped. You didn't enlighten yourself. You didn't illuminate the things of God to yourself. You didn't create the light of the knowledge of the glory of God inside your own heart. You can't. You can't make light. In fact, if we could stop the light, then none of us would be saved. And we forget that so easily in our pride or our entitlement. When it comes to standing before God, we don't do anything that's worth mentioning to get there. God, in his infinite mercy, shone on you and rescued you and changed you and moved you from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. If you have a heart of flesh, it's because God took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But Jesus doesn't only want you to know that you're salt and only want you to know that you're light. But before he proceeds to some more specifics in his teaching, he wants you to know that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So here are two things about fulfillment that I think are worth noting. One, we should evaluate the Old Testament in light of Christ and his work. And two, fulfillment is a major theme of Christ's work. Jesus takes specific aim here at the Christian who discounts or dismisses or mishandles the Old Testament by trying to divide the Jesus of the New Testament from the God of the Old Testament. The fact is, is that you can't love Jesus and hate the God of the Old Testament. They're the same God. These aren't two separate stories. They are one story. The law and the prophets here is shorthand for everything. The law and the prophets is shorthand here for all of the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus knows that the objections are going to come. He knows that the Pharisees are going to call his teaching blasphemous. He knows that his own disciples are going to despair in places like Matthew 19 when the disciples hear Jesus and then they conclude, well, who can be saved? If this is true, then who can even be saved? And the Pharisees will plot to kill Jesus because of what he's teaching. They're going to claim that what he's saying is against the Old Testament and is blasphemous about Yahweh. So to understand fulfillment, you must acquire a Jesus lens 
before all of the Old Testament. You have to understand that the gospel of Christ shows up all the way back in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. This is the first foreshadowing of the gospel. This is what's called the proto-euangelion. It's the first gospel and the work of Jesus. The plan and power of Jesus is first foreshadowed all the way back to Genesis 3. The recreation of a reconciled cosmos is first talked about in Genesis 3. The redemption that Christ makes possible goes all the way back. The story and picture and reality of the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. There's specific kind of prophecies and specific predictions in the Old Testament. There's foreshadowing and and kind of signaling about Jesus all over the Old Testament. And we must hear Jesus's instruction in this sermon in light of that reality. Jesus says in John 5 that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. All the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus. All the teaching of Jesus is completely congruent with the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. And fulfillment is also more than this. Fulfillment is one of the major themes in the book of Matthew. In the first four chapters, Matthew speaks of Jesus behaving to fulfill all righteousness or fulfill all the scriptures no less than seven times before we even make it to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Matthew makes reference to this aspect of Jesus's ministry over and over and over again. Jonathan uh, Pennington summarizes this theme of fulfillment when he says, quote, when the Bible talks about fulfillment in these kinds of passages, it isn't only talking about prediction. Prediction is really just a subset of the bigger idea of fulfillment. Fulfill means that these events figuratively figuratively connect to each other. They model or imitate each other with an added edge of consummation and completion. Fulfillment is a powerful biblical idea that does not depend on prediction per se, while it still leans forward to a time when God will bring full consummation to all of his good redemptive plans. Fulfillment is actually the closest thing we can get to describing the overall theology and theme of Matthew's whole gospel, end quote. Predictive prophecy in the Old Testament is a subset of fulfillment. Jesus makes all the Old Testament make sense. A a, a friend of mine likens the Old Testament to a thousand-piece puzzle but God only gives us 300 of the pieces and he doesn't let us see the top of the box. But then when, when the, when the, um, in the advent of Christ and his ministry, we get all the other pieces and the top of the box and it all fits. And not only does it all fit, it fits perfectly. Everything makes perfect sense. So two things for how we come to understand fulfillment. You must study the law and the prophets in light of Christ and understand that Christ not only explains, but completes the story. 
And then now I'm going to say one thing about greatness as I move to conclude. Jesus, in the kingdom of God, Jesus doesn't flatten the org chart. He doesn't flatten hierarchy. He doesn't flatten distinctions among us, but he always flattens the playing field for all of us if we want to be great in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't promise that we're all, that we're all going to have the same positions or the same power or the same status in this life, but he does promise that greatness is attainable by every single Christian. Listen to Matthew 25. I'm going to read the, the parable of the talents, which is a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. His master said to him, pardon me, for it will be like a man, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two made two more. And he who had one talent, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house, the master of those servants, came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you gave me five, and here I've made five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two came forward saying, hey, you gave me two and I made you two more as well. And his master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you do not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For everyone who has will more be given and he, who, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One thing about how Jesus talks about greatness in the kingdom of God, whoever obeys these things and teaches them to others, whoever listens and, and, and does. Jesus doesn't promise that we're all going to have the same amount of talents. In fact, he kind of says the opposite. He explains that there will be real differences among us, real differences in gifts and blessings, real differences in positions or influence, real differences in what God chooses to give to us. Some of us will have one and some of us will have five and some of us will have 10. And greatness still isn't measured by how much you have or how much he's given you. Greatness is measured in the kingdom by faithfulness, by obedience. 
The invitation into this blessed life is completely inclusive. That kind of invitation is for anyone. There's no one who can't participate in faithfulness. There's no barriers of class or wealth or giftedness. You don't have to be judge or be jealous about what other people have because your greatness in the kingdom just looks like faithfulness with what God has handed you. Greatness in the kingdom doesn't look like greatness in the world. Praise God. It comes through loving Jesus and out of this love, obeying what he says. And before we move forward to conclude and take communion, there's a real shift in this section of the sermon that's going to, uh, uh, Jesus is going to spend chapter after chapter speaking more directly about specific applications and specific practical applications about what to do in different situations. And I want to set up Andrew well for next week by saying something about that phrase, unless you have the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. You see, the rest of the sermon is about righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. It's the kind that exceeds what looks like the most righteous way to live to the people of that day. But it can be defined like this. It is, quote, whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom, end quote. But this kind of righteousness, this kind of righteous life is only possible through the work of Christ on our behalf. Which brings us back always to his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. This sermon ends itself the same way we end, the same way we end every single week. Because as you turn a corner and look at all these teachings of Jesus over the next 10 or 12 weeks, you will be despairing unless you look at it through the cross. Jesus died so that you could die so that what he says in the Sermon on the Mount won't be impossible. That's the only way. If you don't die to yourself and your own desires, your own plans, your own salvation strategies, you can't do what he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And he lived and died and came back from death so that we can hear these things and not live for ourselves. We can't look at the Sermon on the Mount unless we look at it through Jesus' body and blood. The cross of Christ is really the only way to make this transition into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why we proclaim it every single week. Every single week, we proclaim this at the end of our service. And the way we do communion here is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be servers down here right in front of me and then a server in the balcony. And over to my far left, we will have uh, gluten-free and a single serve station as well. And underneath the stained glass window to my left, we always have prayer ministers who would love to pray for anybody for anything. If you're here this morning and you see the high call, the strong instructions from Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, if you see those as something that are hopeless for you to ever do, that your own salvation strategies are hopeless, 
If you're poor in spirit and you see Christ as your only hope and the only way forward, we invite you to take communion. If, if that's not the case, if you don't believe, if you don't see Jesus Christ as your only hope, your only savior, we invite you to sit in your seat and pray, maybe pray with one of our prayer ministers, but we invite you to examine your hearts, examine your own way of life, examine um, the nature of your life and ask Jesus Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. I'm going to pray and thank Jesus for his body and thank him for his blood, the same way he thanked uh, God for the bread and the wine on the night that he was betrayed. And I, I want the, um, the, worshiper, the, worship, uh, the worship team will come back forward and then uh, the, uh, the, the communion servers will come forward. So I'm gonna pray for you all and, um, and then when I'm done, come up when you're ready. So Jesus, thank you for dying. Thank you for allowing your body to be broken. Thank you for allowing your, your blood to be shed. Thank you that you made a way for us when there was no way. Thank you for living a perfect life. Thank you for dying so that we could die to who we are without you. Thank you for dying so that we could die to ourselves. And thank you for being resurrected so that we can live now and in the age to come. So would you give us faith? Would we eat in faith this morning? Would you convict us? Would you minister to us? Would you um, even like sink our faith deeper down into who we are so that as we eat and drink this morning, we proclaim your death until you come again. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.